Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We are nothing if not niche on patented. Now, when you hear the word ectoplasm, a lot of us might think about Bill Murray getting slimed in Ghostbusters or the projectile vomiting of Regan in The Exorcist. But ectoplasm exists outside the Ghostbuster Exorcist universe. If you flick through a history book of our great-grandparents' spiritual beliefs, there are pages sticky with the stuff. Much like the ghosts puking up green goo, ectoplasm was a supernatural substance that exuded from the orifices of spiritual mediums. Charming. By the late 1800s, ectoplasm and communicating with the spirit world through bodily manifestations were on the rise. But how did the practice of ectoplasm come about? What exactly is ectoplasm and why did it exist in the first place? And most importantly, who the hell invented it? Hello, welcome to Patented Gone Paranormal, a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. Thanks for your company. Today, we're exploring the invention of ectoplasm. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, the act of purging, I want to say slime, but it's not really slime. Some kind of supernatural goo, if you like, from your body whilst being in a trance is in fact an invention. Someone came up with that idea. And today I am joined by Ephraim Sarah Shria, who you may remember from our Halloween episode discussing paranormal technologies. Basically, it was so good we wanted to shoehorn him into another one to find out who, if anyone, invented this peculiar substance, act, ectoplasm. Ephraim is a historian who studies the connections between the occult and the sciences. Absolutely fascinating. And we'll discuss the rise of seances, the motivation for ectoplasm, and why spiritualists were being pushed to create physical evidence of a successful seance. It's eerie, it's peculiar, it's fascinating, it's also a little bit shocking. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the show, Ephraim. Well, thanks for having me back. Oh, I'm excited about this. Basically, 
we just wanted to get you back on because we so enjoyed talking to you about spiritualism and things. If you're just joining us, listeners, and you don't know what we're talking about, we had Ephraim on and we did a really wonderful podcast exploring the links between the spiritualist movement of the when are we talking about early 20th century, late 19th century, that kind of time. From the late 1840s onward. Exactly. And we talked about the links between sort of the technology that was emergent at the time. It was really, really fascinating discussion. And so we thought to ourselves, oh my God, we've got to get Ephraim back on and talk about something else. And guess what we're talking about? We're talking about ectoplasm. We thought that would be a fun thing to talk about. Just for the uninitiated, I know what ectoplasm is. Just give us the kind of top line on what ectoplasm is. Ghostbusters, people think about, and the exorcists, obviously. So what do we mean by ectoplasm? Well, you're quite right that most people's entry point into ectoplasm is via that famous opening sequence in Ghostbusters, where it's that gooey substance dripping from the catalog. But actually, that's not what ectoplasm is when you look at the historical case. I know, much to everyone's disappointment when I tell them this, when you look at the descriptions of ectoplasm, it doesn't even match that. It's much more, either it's described as being vaporous, or it's described as being almost like a fabric-like membrane, but you never see any sort of description of it as a sort of slime or goo, which is disappointing for most people. <laughs> it is disappointing. I have a confession to make, by the way. Mm-hmm. I've never seen Ghostbusters. Well. Is that weird? I think that's homework for the next time we meet. Well, but I'm a bit worried because I think, I think it's sort of too late in my life to watch Ghostbusters now. I think if I watch it now, I'm going to be really disappointed. If I'd watched it at the time, then it'd probably be one of those movies, like those 80s movies that I love. And I remember I was going to go and see it with my sister and then we never got around to going to see it. And by the time we got around to it, it had gone from the cinemas and that was it. So it's become one of those films that I only know little bits of, but I've never seen all the way through. Mm. I actually still remember seeing Ghostbusters in cinema with my brother. Yeah. Actually, when you saw that, was that one of the, oh, this is a really interesting subject. Was that one of the, your motivations to get into your research? That- well, as I told you last time, I actually, my mother's family are spiritualists. So I grew up in a spiritualist household. So did seeing Ghostbusters. Notes? Did they all take notes of Ghostbusters? Say, nah, that, that, that would never happen. Well, you know, Dan Aykroyd's a spiritualist. And Is he's he? the leading figure within ah, the spiritualist movement in North I America. no idea. Yeah, so a lot of the members of the spiritualist community flock to see it in cinema because it's sort of one of their own telling the story in sort yeah. of a campy, comical way. But it was uh-huh. sort of a good publicity for spiritualists in that respect. Mm. But obviously, when I saw Ghostbusters, I remember asking my dad afterwards if that was a legitimate career path. And he laughed and said, not if you want to make money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me, my entry point into ectoplasm was The Exorcist, which was a film that has just stuck with me for all my life, partly because I saw it far too young. I was about, I think, 10 or 11 when I saw The Exorcist. And I was deeply, deeply traumatized, like properly traumatized. And of course... The moment when the film turns into this absolute nightmare, because it's quite a slow film, like not a lot. Ha- well, you've got this slow build up for the first third of the movie, very gentle. And then suddenly it all kicks off. And the moment it kicks off is the moment where she sits up in the bed and she just ectoplasms all over her mum. And it is green and it is pea soupy. But I suppose ectoplasm, is it this idea that some kind of substance comes out of the body? Is that it? Where did it come from? Like, where did the idea come from? So there's a, there is a lot of debate about this, but. I would say that one of the best ways to understand it 
is to understand sort of the emergence of these sort of unseen energies that sort of were all encompassing and surrounded all living and non-living objects in the 19th century, very similar to what we in the later part of that period called ether. In the earlier part of the century, we have this French researcher named Ingenieur Etienne Comte de Gasperin, Great name. And, Great uh, name. Imagine being in Starbucks <laughs> and having to say that. And they're like, wait, say that? Write that down? What? <laughs> well, he hypothesized this idea of an ectenic force. And it was this ectemic force that mediums could sort of tap into and use to manipulate and create those physical phenomena like table turning. And so you can oh, already okay. see the etymology of ectenic becoming ectoplasm because there's this idea that it's the materialization of that force. That invisible force can be materialized by the medium and create these different material phenomena that you witness. That's interesting. What's the name of the, I suppose, sort of telekinesis and that idea that you can move objects just using the power of the mind? Is that the same kind of thing as telekinesis? Or I'm just thinking of the... Entomology of the word. Etymology of the word, sorry. So Charles Richet, who is a famous 19th century physiologist and psychical researcher, he's usually the one that people say coined the term ectoplasm. And he coins it while investigating the famed Italian medium, Eusapia Palladino, in 1894. And he had the idea that it wasn't spirits, but it was actually through telekinesis that mediums manipulated this fluid into the materialized form. So yes, is the answer. All of these ideas are sort of connected to one another in shaping that terminology and the theory of how it functions. It's interesting, actually, the words of tele and ecto. And if you're going to invent this type of phenomenon, you're going to create a language that has an authority about it. You know, when someone says telekinesis, it sounds quite legitimate and scientific and researched and old-fashioned. It's a Greek word, I guess, tele. Well, and they saw these pursuits as genuinely scientific yeah. in the period. I mean, still people who research it today would say that it's a, a scientific pursuit. Yeah. And this is a period when the limits and authority of science are still being debated and still being formed. And so there's a lot of opportunity for people to, again, create a space for themselves as a leading expert in that area. And again, Richet is a very, very well-established physiologist. So he's uh, taking his scientific credentials and applying it to this pursuit. And just the word ecto... As- as an outside, like ectomorph or whatever, and plasm. I can understand that compound word, what it sort of means, outside stuff. What is it? I mean, why is it so symbolic? Why are we here discussing it? Where does it come from? I mean, obviously it comes from inside to the outside. Yeah. It emerges through longstanding theories about what we would now talk about as ether theory. So this all-encompassing energy that surrounds us all. And ectoplasm is sort of the way in which mediums are manipulating this invisible fluid energy and creating a material version of it. Solidifying the mysterious things that we think are there but can't somehow be touched, blah, 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 but turning it into some kind of physical entity. That's right. And so, you know, one famous uh, investigator, Albert Schrenk uh, Natsing in 1912, sort of refers to it as idioplasty. It's the idea that through telepathic thought process, the medium could project images onto this material goo that they're creating from that invisible fluid. I say goo, but we're going to talk about how it's actually not goo in a second. It's interesting that the drama of this idea of stuff coming out of the body finds its way into 
popular literature at the time. I think Arthur Conan Doyle described it as a viscous gelatinous substance which appears to differ from every known form of matter in that it could solidify and be used for material purposes. It's that thing, it does, it kind of blends science and scientific ideas, this idea of the nature of matter and but also the kind of mysteries of science, the things that are unknown as well. It seems to tap into all of that. Absolutely. And what's funny about Arthur Conan Doyle is he sits with many of the famous mediums who are producing ectoplasm. And every single one he says is real. (laughs) Okay. So when you say they're, they're producing ectoplasm, I mean, if you look at the photo, I'm just going to just touch on a couple of the photos. And anyone can Google these photos. If you Google, I don't know, Helen Duncan. Helen Helen Duncan. There you go. Helen Duncan, Mina Crandon, ectoplasm. And you've got these wonderful pictures. I've always loved these pictures. And they're all kind of rather starchily dressed, very serious looking black and white pictures of people from the early 20th century. And stuff is coming out of them. But it's clearly just like a bedsheet and stuff like that. It just looks vaguely ridiculous. Doesn't it? Well, I mean, that's one of the things that people say about Helen Duncan's photographs in particular, especially the one where there's her spirit guide next to her. It was fully okay. formed. And it looks, I mean, suspiciously would be generous, but suspiciously like a paper mache mask with a white sheet hanging on a wired, you know, hanger. Yeah. But at the time when people were in the seance room and the conditions were set by the medium and it creates an environment that allows someone to sort of be absorbed into the whole performance of it, when these figures emerge, it really seemed realistic. And so working with a photographer named Metcalf, she wanted to add further scientific credibility to it. But actually, it ended up undermining her authority altogether, because once people saw the photographs, it ruined this mystique that she had carefully curated. And people were saying, that doesn't look right to me. Well, that's it. It's that interesting thing of you know, all this technology that was coming up in the time. Suddenly people could say, well, actually, hey, you don't have to be at the seance anymore to see the ectoplasm coming out. We can take a photo of it with this new miracle called photography, another Greek word. But then, as you say, it kind of ruins the mystique. So it's, maybe you could take us through some of the people. So who are these photographers? And you mentioned Helen Duncan there. Just tell us a little bit about who they were and what their motivation was. So Duncan's really famous. It's probably one of the people that you would associate first with ectoplasm. So Helen Duncan rose to prominence in the late 1920s, and she's remembered today infamously for the last person to be imprisoned under the Witchcraft Act of 1735, essentially for being caught tricking people into believing that she had some genuine supernormal powers. But you know, she rises as a medium. I think it's in 1926 that she discovers her powers. She's in her late 20s. And she soon teams up with this Harvey Metcalf guy, who's a, a photographer. And they start performing and she produces ectoplasm and he, he catalogs it and photographs it. And they create this sort of profile for themselves. And people like Harry Price, the famous paranormal investigator, sees this imagery and learns about her mediumship. And he says that, you know, this ectoplasm looks suspiciously like cheesecloth. Yeah. And he manages to get a sample (laughs) of that ectoplasm, which is still in the collection today, the Price collection, and has it tested by a chemist. And sure enough, the chemist says it's a mixture of egg whites, cheesecloth, and some random chemicals. So they're using science to dispute it as well. So just explain to me, so if she's a medium, okay, and she's doing this, but she knows she's a fraud then. But at any point, does she believe in ectoplasm? At any point, does anyone believe in ectoplasm as an actual thing? Or are they all just fraudulent? 
So me being a skeptic would say they're all fraudulent, but there are certainly many people at the time who believed this phenomena to be legitimate. Helen Duncan's a bad example to hitch your ride to if you're a believer because she was emphatically shown to be a, a, a fraud. But there were earlier Victorian physical mediums and physical mediums were ones that used their mediumship to create physical effects as opposed to mental or cognitive effects like mm. clairvoyance. So these yeah. types of mediums in the 1870s were producing some astounding displays. And when investigators tried to interview them and learn more about it, some of them were very convincing in their arguments that this was genuine stuff that they were producing. And whether this was self-delusion or not, that's questionable. But they certainly believed it. Okay, well, tell you what would be interesting. Take us back in time to, I don't know, the 1870s. And we're in a, a room and it's dark, and we're going to do a seance, and someone's going to produce this idea of ectoplasm. What would we see? I mean, if we were actually there, rather than just the photographs, like what would the vibe be, other than a bit weird? <laughs> I think it would be a bit awesome, but that's It just would me. be awesome. Honestly, it would be so awesome. <laughs> the thing is, if someone pulls a bit of cheesecloth out of someone's mouth, I'm going to know that's a bit of cheesecloth. Yes, that's true. But it's a different period, right? It's a different period. So in the 1870s, actually, that's the heyday of physical mediumship in terms of there had been a long period now since the 1840s where there had been a lot of sort of basic phenomena being produced at seances, knocks and raps, some clairvoyance and talking to spirits, but it was getting boring. And the punters were wanting something new. And you get the rise of new mediums who are doing much more extraordinary displays. Daniel Douglas Hume, as an example, is sort of one of the most famous Victorian mediums. And he's the one who was investigated by William Crookes, the famous chemist physicist. Crookes verified him as a legitimate medium. And he did all sorts of things like taking hot embers from the fireplace and holding it in his hand without it burning him, levitating off the ground, being able to make himself taller or shorter on command and being measured. And so this was incredible stuff and people loved it. And he had lots of people who were willing to house him and pay for his food and stuff. He never took money, but he lived a high life through them as payment. And so that also, because he wasn't being paid to do these things, added to the whole thing that he wasn't in it for the money, even though he clearly was in it for the lifestyle. And he married some very rich women as well. But, you know, he sort of starts this whole revolution of the physical mediumship. And then you get people like Florence Cook, teenage sensation in the early 1870s, who was famous for being able to allegedly bring forward the fully formed materialization of a spirit known as Katie King. At a typical seance with Cook, you'd sit down, she'd explain that she was going to go into trance and bring forward the spirit. And then she would either enter a cabinet or an adjoining room, put a sheet over her head to go into trance. The door would be closed You'd wait a few minutes, and then the door would open, either again, the cabinet or the adjoining room, and out would come the spirit of Katie King. And if you looked in, you could still see under the sheet, you couldn't see their face, the body of Cook in trance. And then Cook would go around, not Cook, rather, Katie would go around, interact with the sitters and tell jokes, sometimes sit on the laps of the gentlemen. And, you know, it was a great show. And then she'd go back, retire into the cabinet of the room, and out would come Cook again. But suspiciously, the two, Katie King and Cook, looked an awful lot like one another. And (laughs) 
you know, people notice this likeness and would say it's the same person. But again, spiritualists had all sorts of arguments for why that was the case. So, for instance, because the medium is conjuring her forward, it takes on the visual appearance of the medium and all those sorts of arguments. And it compelled a lot of people until eventually someone seized the hand of the spirit and said, well, this is a person. And that ruined it. But it lasted a while. And also, if you have the propensity to believe this stuff, if you're really into it and you desperately want to believe it, it's quite easy to trick the brain into believing all kinds of crazy things that might not be happening. Grief is a powerful tool. And they use that. I forget the name of the woman now. A few years ago, there was a woman who did sort of a clairvoyance act. And clearly she was, you know, she said, oh, I can talk to dead relatives and that kind of thing. And we can, you know, and people would come and fill big theatres. And of course, she just had an earpiece and was fed information. So there seems to be a lot of charlatans out there who are using exactly, as you say, this idea of grief and people desperately wanting to believe, desperately wanting to be in contact with loved ones. It's a powerful thing. But it works both ways because the famous Victorian anthropologist, Edward Burnett Tyler, he was really interested in all these reports of mediums. So he goes to London in the 1870s. I think it was November 1872. Investigates all the big name mediums that are giving shows at the time. And one of the things that he notes down in his writings is that people become mediums through grief as well. And they genuinely believe that they're intercommunicating with spirits. And it's because of that grief that they're self-deluding themselves into that belief as well. So it works both ways. Dear listener, go back and listen to our previous episode because we talked a lot about this. You mentioned sort of levitation as one of those just really dramatic things that might happen in the... I remember when I first moved to London, did I tell you the story about my David Blaine story? I'd just seen David Blaine, the magician, and he did that famous levitation that he became well-known for. And it was unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like it. And I thought to myself, whatever happens in life, if you can levitate, that's just awesome. Like, it doesn't matter what else happens. (laughs) I can levitate. Luckily, I live next door to International Magic, my favorite magic shop. And I taught myself magic. And one of the things I taught myself was how to levitate. And I could do the David Blaine levitation really quite well. It's called the Balducci levitation. It's really easy. Everyone knows how to do it now. But at the time, in the early 90s, it was still kind of, wow, no one had seen it. Because it was an old Victorian parlor trick that had fallen out of favor and nobody was sort of interested in it anymore. And then David Blaine made it popular again. Anyway, I had a lot of fun freaking people out for a good couple (laughs) of years with my levitation trick. Anyway, no ectoplasm though. (laughs) But that's exactly what people like, you know, Harry Houdini used to do is he would recreate all of the effects that mediums were supposedly producing through spirits ah, or through that's telekinetic forces. A lot of that kind of magic, that's sort a of Victorian magic, people like Houdini, Balducci, all these people, their kind of acts would be kind of coming from the spiritualist movement, some of that drama, but sort of slightly repackaged, I suppose. Well, even magicians, very famous American magician, Harry Keller, was actually touring with the Davenport brothers yes. before he became a magician. So he was busy working behind the scenes and helping them create their effects and then takes that knowledge and becomes a really successful magician. So there's a shared history there of people going between the two sides. Even Houdini performed as a mystic and then realized after the death of his mom when he was really grieving how it was actually wrong and that he was exploiting people and then switches Mm -hmm. sides. So there's a long history of them working both together and against one another. On Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the medieval age. 
So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? Using science to identify our buried ancestors. Genetic signatures found in present-day Ashkenazi Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found in these individuals. And reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles. I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion. I'm Matt Lewis and every Tuesday and Friday you can join me to travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and to get under the skins of the ones you have. Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I tell you who I'm really interested in who's a mystic. I can't remember whether we mentioned this. Apologies if I did. This guy, George King in the 1950s in London. And his mother was a spiritualist and he was part of that whole spiritualist movement in London. But it was during a time when extraterrestrial ideas were becoming very, very popular, the idea of communicating with extraterrestrials. And so he would channel people who lived on Venus and Mars and do these amazing kind of spirit voices of these extraterrestrials. And it's called the Ethereum Society. And they're wonderful and terrific and still going. You know, you listen to some of George King's tapes of him channeling E.T. And it's just, it's really interesting and, and rather poetic and rather lovely. And Anyway, no ectoplasm as far as I know. Let's get back to ectoplasm. So it sounds like the way you talk about it, it's a kind of, okay, well, we've done levitation. We've done telekinesis. We need something really good and dramatic that comes from this idea of summoning material from the body. Yeah, so the biggest thing that I think the game changer, obviously the fully formed materializations like Katie King was a big one. And that's very similar to the ectoplasmic figures that we see in the 1920s of people like Duncan and Crandon. But what else happens is there is another group who are connected to people like Cook who are doing spirit apports. And that's basically teleporting objects and people into sealed rooms. And that blows people away. You'd be sitting at a table in a seance room, lights are off and suddenly snow would start falling down on the table and it would wow everybody. And of course, there's no way that that snow could have been there before because you had the lights on, there's a roaring fire. How did that happen? And so the spirit of port becomes the showstopper. And then from that, once people start getting exposed for various things, they just have to up their game again. They have to change the performance. And that's really how the whole ectoplasm thing occurs, it's just another attempt to try and produce phenomena without getting caught. 
And that's the history of basically all physical mediumship is something gets exposed, magicians show how it's done, do something new. And actually that idea of having something physical, like a physical object rather than just some form of mediumship where you could talk to someone from beyond the grave, actually having something you could hold in your hands, not that you'd want to hold ectoplasm, but the fact that it exists in a physical realm, in a way kind of really ups the game because suddenly you've got these two realms colliding, if you see what I mean. You've got the spirit realm and actually physically being in our realm. Mm -hmm. And also it's a more empirical source of evidence. So if you're going to try and prove the reality of spirits, physical evidence is much more compelling than mental evidence, which is really hard to prove or disprove, whereas exactly. physical is much easier, but yeah. it's a high stakes game. And that's, <laughs> yeah, why, and that's why they get exposed when they do this stuff, where they don't get exposed as often when it's a mental phenomena, because there's all yeah. sorts of ways in which you can blag your way through that. You can't do that when you're literally using a pulley system to lift you off of the ground. You know, it's not the same thing. There's a name you mentioned as well, Crandon, you, you mentioned there, mm-hmm. just for our listeners. That's Mina Crandon. And I've just looked at a photo of Mina Crandon and one of her ectoplasm pictures. And it's a picture of a, some people sitting around a wooden desk and they're holding hands, as is the Vogue. And on the table, I guess, is some ectoplasm, but it just looks like a dog turd. So that is the alleged hand of her dead brother, Walter Stinson. It's the ectoplasmic hand that would emerge from her body, from her groin, and go on to the table. Hang on. It would emerge from her groin, like actually from her... From her genitals. That's right. Yes. So this hand would come out. Crikey. It's very common in cases of ectoplasmic mediumship for the ectoplasmic releases to emerge from your genitalia. Most orifices are where ectoplasm is released from. They call it externalized. You externalize the fluid that's in you out of your orifices. Well, luckily in this picture, you don't actually see the genitalia because she's, she's wearing a big, strong coat. But you do see this, well, I suppose it is a bit like a proto hand. But I mean, how would that be produced? I mean, looking at the picture, there's a kind of ridiculous hand on a table. I mean, was there a string that pulled it out? Or like, how did it? Well, remember, you're working within a very dark space. So there are moments when a skilled person at, you know, Leisure Dermain can pull that out without being detected. So in this case, those who saw the photographs and who believed her to be a fraud thought it's animal tissue that had been sewn together to look like a hand. And her husband was a very skilled surgeon and had the abilities to create something like that to help with the hoax that they were trying to create. And they actually took fingerprints of that ectoplasmic hand and to see if the fingerprints matched any of those of the sitter. And it turned out that it indeed matched the fingerprints of her still living dentist. That's incredible. Hey, listen, I've got a friend, Nina Conti is her name. You may have heard of her. She's a ventriloquist and a comedian and she's an old friend of mine. And she's a ventriloquist. I mean, ventriloquism isn't very fashionable or popular at the moment, but she's kind of made it fashionable and popular and she's great. And we used to work together. And she's a ventriloquist because she used to work with Ken Campbell, who I used to work with. And we were part of this thing called the School for Ventriloquists years and years ago. And then Nina went on to do it professionally and I dropped out because the whole thing was barking mad. But I remember Ken talking to us about the history of ventriloquism. And he talked about this idea of what he called gastromancy, which was this idea that you could kind of somehow suck up spirits through their orifices, through their anus and other bits 
and then the spirit would live inside them and then they could talk as the spirit and then the spirit would leave the same way that it came out. Have you come across that? There are so many different theories about how mediums bring the control into them during trance. And that is just one of the many colorful explanations that I've read over the years. It's not the most common version, of course, but there are people who talk about that. I'm just Googling it. Gastromancy is from ancient Greek, meaning belly or stomach. It may refer to gastromancy, a method of divination by using stomach sounds to represent the voices of the dead. There you go. It is a thing. Anyway, he was really interested in gastromancy, this idea. And ventriloquism comes from that, this idea you can have a a disembodied voice and a disembodied person. And I suppose this idea of ectoplasm, in a way, fits into that somewhere. I suspect. I mean, all of these things fit into one another. Yeah. Mediums could do both types of phenomena, audio phenomena, but also physical phenomena and cognitive mm. phenomena as well. And, you know, one of the things that investigators like Houdini would do is he'd show how you could, as a skilled ventriloquist, project your voice across a room so that it would sound like it was coming from another corner in the darkness. Yes. But a really skilled ventriloquist knows how to pitch their voice in that direction to get the acoustics to work in their favour. Okay, so that's the kind of basis of ectoplasm. You know, we started off talking about Ghostbusters and the Exorcist. How did it kind of cross over into become this thing that we think of, the kind of green goo, this kind of weird sci-fi thing? That's a good question. And to be honest, I'm not really sure where that transformation happens, but it does happen. And I think it's just because, you know, the idea of taking something like cheesecloth and stringing it over that catalog in Ghostbusters doesn't really have the same effect as the gooiness did. And so I think in many respects, in order to make it look better for film, they had to shift it from sort of the historical version that we see in all of these investigations to make it work better on film. So I do think it's a Hollywood thing that changed it. Yes, of course. Yeah. You know, when you watch The Exorcist, there is something just weirdly, I don't know why it's so affecting the idea of someone just kind of projectile vomiting green stuff all over you. Anyway. And it was shocking in the 1920s when these mediums were producing it. I mean, we look at it now and we laugh about how fake it looks. But again, it's still a relatively young technology. (laughs) People aren't really skilled yet at creating sort of illusions with it. So it was much easier for people to believe this stuff than it is now when it just looks like a doctored photograph. Well, when I watched The Exorcist when I was little, I was completely bowled over by it. It was traumatizing. It was oh God, this is horrific. And of course, I showed it to my daughter. She was a bit older. I can't remember. She was like 14 or 15. That was the day. I said, I'll let you watch The Exorcist. But, and I gave her all the warnings and we'd been talking about it for years. And she watched it and she was like, it's ridiculous. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Here's me looking at those Victorian pictures of cheesecloth coming out of people's noses. And mm-hmm. It's probably the same thing. Yeah, I, I yeah. get it. Absolutely. Get point. Okay, you, you know, we've talked about a lot of different people over this last half hour of this podcast, who invented ectoplasm? Like if you had to kind of pick someone. So it's widely acknowledged that the term ectoplasm was coined by the French physiologist and psychical researcher Charles Richet in 1894 when he was investigating the famed Italian medium Eusapia Palladino. It at first appears in print actually in his Dictionary of Physiology in 1895. But again, I would say that it's that early group of mediums in the 1870s, people like Florence Cook, people like Charles Williams and Frank Hearn, who are doing all of this physical mediumship, who are the early precursors 
to the stuff that happens in the 1920s with people like Crandon, with people like Duncan. So they're just following in a tradition that had already been there for a while. Charles Richet, what a legacy to leave the world. You can imagine him going up to the sort of pearly gates and you know they've got the clipboard. Is that right? What did you do? Oh, I invented ectoplasm. They'd be like, brilliant. Yeah. Finally, 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 someone has explained Excellent. this. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> That's really good. Okay. What happened to him, by the way? Do we have any, because it's not a name I'm familiar with, Charles I mean, Richet. Richet had a really successful career as a physiologist. I mean, outside of psychical research, he was a credible medical figure, which again, okay. was one of the reasons for why he's such a significant investigator and added a lot of credibility to these investigations because he was a person with that background. And he worked with other core founding members of psychical research, like Oliver Lodge, who we spoke about last time, the famous mm. physicist who, again, Again, his bestseller was those communications with the spirit of his dead son in his book, Raven. It wasn't any of his science writing. It was actually right. his spiritualist writing that sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It's incredible when you think about how much attention spiritualism had in that period. We're talking millions of people. It wasn't a fringe thing. It was mainstream culture in that yes. period. Well, hey, listen, we don't see enough ectoplasm at the moment. I think <laughs> I'm going to go off and buy some cheesecloth. And get a packet of cheap wool sausages and just stitch them together and make a kind of weird hand. Well, Shannon Taggart, who's a photographer and has worked with the Lilydale community of spiritualists for about 20 years now, has a wonderful photo book. And some of the photos in there are of ectoplasm. Really? What's Contemporary oh, photographs of ectoplasm. What's the book called so we can Google that? Seance by Shannon Taggart. Shannon Taggart. I'm going to look that up. It's definitely worth it. And there's a foreword by Dan Aykroyd. Oh, well, <laughs> hey, on that alone. And just other bit of homework to do, listeners, if you're interested, go and have a look at Gastromancy. Really, really interesting. And go and look at Mina Crandon's picture of the hand. It might be my favourite picture of all time. Where are the originals of these pictures? Because honestly, like if that came up for auction, I would buy that. There are prints. There are lots of prints that survive. Is you there? can find them in the okay. Senate House Library. There's some there that you can see. And there's some in the Cambridge collections as well. College of Psychics has some, of course. And then, of course, SPR has in their archives as well. So you can get copies of them fairly easily. And we haven't cool. even talked about Eva C yet. So Eva C was a, another ectoplasmic medium and her shows were exceptionally scandalous for one thing she was nude completely nude for most of them and used all sort of sexualized performances to sort of distract her male investigators she's having affairs with some of them some of them have i would say uncomfortable fixations with her and so she uses this to get all of these reports saying she's legitimate and she, you know, also has her assistant in the room who she's also, again, in a relationship with. So there's all these people who are helping her to create this amazing performance, highly sexualized performance for sitters. And there's photographs of that as well. They were censored for publication at the time, but you can see the uncensored ones as well. But again, it was truly incredible stuff. And she also worked with people who would come out of trap doors to be the spirit during her performances and then exit through the trap doors. So really well-conceived performances that she'd put together. I love it. I love it. Hey, you know, I nearly bought the, you know, the Cottingley Fairies photo, very famous kind of 
photos of this particular era. They came up for auction a few years ago and I nearly bought them. You can see the original camera and photographs at the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford. In Bradford, there you go. There we are. Hey, listen, we're going to leave it there. Ephraim, it's been an absolute pleasure. I love talking about this stuff, as you can tell. It's like, yes, let's do an episode on ectoplasm. Thank you very much. Come back on and talk about whatever you want. Oh, you know what? I'm still looking for a spirit trumpet. I'm trying to find an original spirit trumpet as well for my collection. Well, next time we come on, I'll talk about spirit trumpets with you. That's a good idea. Nice. All right. Many thanks, Ephraim. We'll see you soon. Thank you. There we go. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that rather peculiar episode. If you did, don't forget to tell your friends and family. Maybe you could um, projectile vomit ectoplasm all over them. We've got loads of different episodes. We covered all kinds of subjects from the more familiar traditional subjects of invention through to the really niche ones like this. If you've got a niche suggestion, you'd like us to cover something bonkers, we'd love to do it. Email us at patented at historyhit.com. I will look forward greatly to your company next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.